So today we turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. I don't have a handout for you because I figure you have a Bible with you. If you don't, share the one with the person next to you or something of that nature. 2 Thessalonians is an interesting short book. Um, you know, I, can, I want to go into some of the introductory background of it, partly because there's some scholastic controversy related to this book. The first and the, mo the most uh, prolific controversy is that Paul might not have been the author of it, according to some scholars. Now, you might say, what? It's very obviously from Paul. It says it's from Paul, right at the very first verse. Uh, and as we know, pretty much every Bible in every book in the Bible is contested as to its origin or its uh, composition. So that isn't too much of a surprise. It's the arguments that are used that are somewhat surprising. They're saying that. You know, it sounds a little like Paul, but it doesn't sound like Paul. The um, general consensus, at least historically, is that 2 Thessalonians was written six months after 1 Thessalonians, approximately. In other words, right on top of the previous letter. There aren't really any other letters in the New Testament where you have a one and a two that were that close together, at least from what we can tell. But the, one of the main, so there I've got three down here, but one of the main reasons they think that they're different authors is the eschatology, the view of the end times. Because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is very clear, even says that Jesus is gonna come like a thief in the night. It's imminent, it's just about ready to happen. And we will have no idea when it's gonna happen. 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, says that he will come after there are signs. Does that sound like a contradiction? On the face of it, it does. Except when you look at what Jesus had to say about his own second coming. In Matthew 24, he uh, says that... If I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You won't know what's going to happen. And there will be signs. Oh, well, I guess if Jesus said it, then it's okay for Paul to use two different ways of saying the same thing. So we can safely, as a class, we can just vote and go, well, that one doesn't work. Okay, so how about the next one? This is more linguistic. And I actually do have a handout, but it's not the text. It is the similarities between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and I, and we have a full class, and I only printed 20 of these, so you get to share uh, as best you can. We'll do it. Hopefully everybody can get one. Uh, couples can share, hopefully, if you like each other. This will be a test. <laughs> and I'm the only one who can see whether you like each other or not. But anyway, you have this interesting little chart, which is from a book called The Charts in the Life, Letters, and Theology of Paul by Lars Kirspel. Oh, there we go. We got, everybody's got one then. Published by Kriegel. 
Um, the, it's fascinating when you see this guy put together the, the, the similarities between first and second Thessalonians. You've got everything from the greeting or the prescript, the first Thanksgiving, second Thanksgiving, transition to the application, the petition and warning, church and disorders, the, uh, the, the goodbye or the subscription. These are very similar in construction. Then you have verbal similarities where he compares verses from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians and you see almost the same wording. Now, in the scholastic world, there was one evangelical scholar who had a recent um, uh, evangelical theological society meeting spent his entire lecture pointing out all the, dis the dissimilarities, the differences, therefore concluding at an evangelical theological society meeting that Paul didn't write this letter that it was composed about 60 years later. Conversely, there was another scholar, not at the same meeting, but at a previous one, who talked about there are far too many similarities. So you have one scholar saying there's too many differences, another one saying there's too many similarities, so obviously Paul didn't write it. That somebody just came in and copied the idea. Now, obviously there's similarities. We have the chart to show it. I don't see a problem with that. In fact, as I wrote this little sentence, I would argue that my emails to the same person on the same topic six months apart are similar, but not similar. My tone can be quite different at times, but to suggest that someone else wrote my email is ludicrous. I'll bet you have that same situation. You could have written to someone about a theological idea back in, let's see, this is June, so last December, and you wrote about, to them about the Incarnation. And you want to write to them about it again to further clarify or to correct something that you heard that they had said. And you might be a little more strident this time. Or you might be a little more gracious this time. Or you might want to say, you're an idiot. <laughs> um, but that wouldn't be very nice. You can only do that on Twitter and get away with it. Um, but you see, this idea that there was either too many similarities or too many dissimilarities as arguments that it's not the same author, it's really weak. It's a really weak argument, in my opinion. Then a third thing, uh, that, by the way, the list of reasons why there was differences is I think eight of them, and I only chose three to talk to you about, because uh, the others get really nitpicky. But the third one is that there's too many topical similarities between the two books. Why did he write again so soon on the same topic? Let's go back to my example. You're having a dialogue with someone or you're trying to disciple someone six months ago on the Incarnation. And then in late May or mid-May, you hear or read something that that fella has written or you heard them speak on something and you go, you weren't listening last time. So let me reiterate. Let me get back to what's going on. Thus comes the question, what is the occasion or what prompted this letter for Paul to write it? And the key to that is chapter 2, verse 2. 
Turn your Bibles from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Well, I'll run up to it by reading the previous verse. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. Wait. What just happened? Was there a forged letter of Paul circulating, claiming that Paul said that Jesus has already come and that letter hit the Thessalonian church after the first book of Thessalonians had been received? That's what's suggested here. That's, that's kind of significant. In fact, if I found out that someone had written a post and made me the author of that post that said all sorts of incorrect things, I would have a problem with that. Someone has forged my name. Someone has faked that, oh yeah, Steve Lobby says, which by the way happens in my industry. I've been quoted incorrectly by experts who misunderstood what I said or were simply trying to give their opinion weight. That, no, that ends very quickly if I'm able to get to the source. So, Daniel Wallace, who's one of the great New Testament scholars in our era, proposed a following historical reconstruction of events. Uh, just kind of, kind of walk with me or listen as, as Daniel Wallace writes. The first thing we know that Timothy was sent by Paul to Thessalon Thessalonica to confirm their faith. Because they, you know, Paul had been run out on a rail. He wasn't there very long. He didn't have much chance to establish himself or the church. So he sent Timothy back as an emissary. We're not sure that they even knew who Timothy was by sight. They might have known him by name, but they might not have recognized him. So he came in as Paul's emissary. He then, Paul then writes 1 Thessalonians and sends it to the Thessalonian church but probably didn't use Timothy as the messenger because you have the letter being from Paul, Silas, Silvanus, and Timothy, so it's possible a second person unknown to the recipients received it. The enemies of Paul, probably from the synagogue, infiltrated the church at Thessalonica and took note of his M.O. Paul's M.O., his modus operandi, that he would send someone unknown to the group with a message or with something from Paul. So, it is also perhaps that these enemies reported the activity to the local government, and so communication from Paul would be harmless enough, or perhaps a messenger from Paul would not be enough to incite a riot, but the enemies needed a different plan if they wanted to squash the popularity of Christianity. So they forged a letter 
as though it's from Paul, which included a message that discredits Paul's eschatology, hoping to dislodge the faith of the Thessalonians and maybe bring them back. And that's where verse 2 of chapter 2 comes in. Now remember, last week when we were studying the very end of 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that Paul said is to test everything. It makes you wonder how much misinformation was being circulated even before he wrote the letter, first letter. Now we've got this second letter that has misinformation being circulated. And he's going, guys, would you just check your sources? Wikipedia, you cannot trust. <laughs> People can edit it. All you have to, by the way, to edit, any one of you can edit Wikipedia, you know. All you have to do is sign up for an account. And then you make a change. Now they have people that are supposed to verify your changes, but you know, there's only a billion people on the planet with access. Anyway. So they forge this letter and then they send the letter by someone unknown to the Thessalonica church. Then Paul sends someone to check up on the Thessalonians or he received a report about their misunderstanding of the end times. And now Paul writes this letter. Does that fall, make sense? And you just kind of look at this because of the, why, in other words, why at the end of 2 Thessalonians, look at the very last verse, um, second the last verse of the entire book. Chapter three, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is the sign of genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the way I write. He didn't do that in 1 Thessalonians. So obviously, there's been a problem. And now they can recognize his handwriting to know that it's really him. Now granted, you can forge handwriting, but you've got to really work at it. Um, So we kind of get into our, I guess your opening salvo, the opening situation. Paul starts right away, verse one, chapter one. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, the three amigos. They, these guys are traveling around together. They are uh, working for the kingdom of God. They are now in Corinth, most likely. Um, and they write, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very typical opening. It's a long way of saying, hey dudes, how you doing? <laughs> you know, we're not quite so effusive in our uh, writings to our friends and family, but this is how they would typically start something. But then he goes, starting in verse three, he does what he did in the first book. He praises them for their work and their activity. We ought always to give thanks, and I put a parenthesis around that and went, oh wait, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. So Paul's doing that. I'm, we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Now one preacher, Ray Stedman, pointed out something that I thought was interesting, not necessarily foundational, but interesting. In 1 Thessalonians, the first verses, he talks to them of their, well, let me get, I'll actually read it to you. This is verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We remembering we are remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, number one, your labor of love, number two, and your steadfastness of hope, number three. Now we look at our text today. He talks about their faith that is growing abundantly, their love for every one of you, and not the third. Not their steadfastness of hope. It's not mentioned. Steadfastness is mentioned in the next verse, but not steadfastness of hope. Now, Ray Stedman asked the question, could this be a clue as to what is troubling these people, troubling the, con the, the congregation? Because the congregation, at least according to chapter 2, verse 2, have the idea that they missed the second coming. Jesus already came back, and they missed it. You know, they were watching reruns of Cheers, and they missed it on ABC News. You know, that something happened, and they weren't on the Internet. They didn't see it. But, and I'm being facetious, obviously, but the point is, is that something critical is bothering them, and could it be that they have lost hope? So he doesn't commend their hope here. Now, I don't want to build an entire sermon or an entire lesson or an entire book around that thing, because it could be just simply, he just didn't mention it. It's not a big deal. But it is interesting, if you compare the two, that that is not brought up. But he does go into verse 4, which is interesting. He says, therefore, we ourselves, we boast about you in the churches of God. He's probably talking about them in the, to the Corinthian church right now. About your steadfastness, your perseverance. That Greek word means to stand under. As if somebody's bearing a weight. And the weight is so heavy that it's pressing down on them. There's pressure. But they're still standing. You know, in my younger days, when I had the ability, I would like to try to do my efforts in weightlifting. Mm, these great guns. <laughs> yeah, I really had no skill uh, or strength. In fact, when I was in eighth grade, uh, I ended up ending, ha having a bodyguard uh, who was the biggest meanest guy in the entire school became my bodyguard because we were in the weight room and I was sitting there struggling to lift the bar there were no weights on the bar <laughs> that's how weak I was I was a very very skinny I grew eight inches and gained no weight in one year you know that kind of thing for a young man and I'm just eh, this bar and he comes over I mean he massive big guy and he looks at me and goes You've got to be kidding me. You can't lift that. Oh my gosh. You are such a weakling. And he, he kind of came over and he just talks to me and he puts his arm around me and says, Hey buddy, if anybody gives you trouble, you come find me. And I mean, I had no trouble. 
Nobody messed with me because I was such a weakling. I was so pathetic. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's just, but there are times you can watch the great weightlifters in the Olympics and other things. They've got these thousand pounds or 600 pounds or whatever, and they're straining under that weight. Take that picture and put it in this word. The veins are popping out. Your every effort that you have just to get through that next motion, that next day, that is the steadfastness or the perseverance of the persecution and the afflictions that they're enduring. He said, your steadfastness and faith is such that we boast about it wherever we go. came across a story this week that I just thought was appropriate in a way. We, we talk a lot about our persecuted brethren every week. This is modern day. This is it. This is happening every day. And I'm not sure if it's the church here when you mentioned down here, but the, uh, the pastor was arrested. And he wrote, a, he had pre-written a letter of testimony to the world. If I am ever arrested, get this out into the internet. And it was, it's one of the most powerful testimonies of dealing with persecution and standing under the weight of the world poking at our faith. And I came across this story, which I'd never heard before, of a man named Franz Jagerstatter. The title of it is A Quiet Martyr. This is World War II in Germany. Actually, it's in Austria where he lived. He was a young man, uh, grown up in Austria. Then the Nazis came and took over. Um, he, as this young man, he was probably, let's see, around 30, let me do the math here, 30, 38 years old, 39 years old. He openly opposed the growing Nazi presence in his country. He returned the greeting of Heil Hitler with, Fui Hitler. <laughs> that is not a way to endear yourself with your fellow uh, people in charge. It grew and grew and grew as a problem. His opposition was great. He wrote a letter to his pastor where he said, I believe it is better to sacrifice one's life right away than to place oneself in grave danger by committing sin and then dying. A couple years later, the Nazis came into Austria and began drafting, conscripting the men of any age, doesn't matter how old they were, into the German army. And they were throwing them at Stalingrad. They were just taking whoever and sending them off. He had five of his friends that he had, had already died. But he made it very clear that he would not serve in Hitler's army. And it was for, his, for Christian reasons, his reasons of his faith. He could not support it. And he was public about it. He wrote this to his wife. If I had 10 children, the greatest demand on me is still the one I must make of my, I'm sorry, he didn't, this was to, uh, yeah, this is to his wife. The, the greatest demand upon me is still the one I must make of myself. Again and again, people stress the obligation of conscience as they concern my wife and children. 
Yet I cannot believe that just because one has a wife and a child or children, he is free to offend God. Dear wife, you should not be sad at my present situation. As long as a man has an untroubled conscience and knows that he's not really a criminal, he can live at peace even in prison. I think it's better for you to tell the children where their father is than to lie to them. I'm always troubled by the fear that you have much to suffer on my account. Forgive me everything if I, if I bring injustice down upon you. Obviously, he'd been arrested. Was arrested and placed in jail in Austria. Six months later, he was transferred to Berlin. Obviously, they're pushing toward trial. And a chaplain was assigned to him who tried to convince him to recant. He assured him that as a private citizen, he had no responsibility for the acts and policies of the government. And by taking the oath, the oath, and accepting military service, he would not be endorsing the Nazi objectives. He would just merely be obeying the order, the orders like thousands of other good Catholics. He refused. So in July came the trial. They again tried to convince him during the trial. This wasn't a quick, you know, he's saying this and, you know, send him off. They gave him every chance. They warned him that his stubborn refusal would mean certain death. And Franz Jagerstadter maintained that he was fully aware of the consequence, but that his conscience would not permit him to fight. So they offered him to be a conscientious objector. We're not going to force you to serve. You can just join and we'll stick you in the kitchen or something. And he refused. He explained that such a provision would only add falsehood to an already immoral compromise. So he was condemned to death. He wrote his wife a few days before his execution. He said, I thank you once more from my heart for everything you've done for me in my lifetime, for all the love and sacrifice that you have borne for me. It was not possible for me to free you from the pain that you must now suffer on my account. I thank Jesus that I am privileged to suffer and even die for him. How painful life often is when one lives life as a halfway Christian. It's more like vegetating than living. The true Christian is to be recognized more in his works and deeds than in his speech. And the surest mark of all is found in deeds showing love of neighbor. To do unto one's neighbor what one would desire for himself is more than merely not doing others what one would not want done to himself. Let us love our enemies. And he was walked to the scaffold in August of 1943 and hung and then beheaded and then burned into ashes. They found another letter he had written, and it wrote, he wrote this. The war which we Germans are already carrying on against almost all the peoples of the world is not something that broke upon us without warning. Like a terrible hailstorm, perhaps, which one can only watch helplessly and at most pray that it will end soon without causing too much damage, did Nazism fall upon us out of the clear blue sky? No. I think we need not waste many words about that, for anyone who's not been sleeping the past 10 years knows perfectly well how and why things have come to be as they are. The church let herself be taken prisoner. And ever since, 
she has laid in chains. That's a man who his conscience, his theology, would not let him even give the slightest stamp of approval of what was happening in the world, despite every possibility and every opportunity to compromise, he refused. He stood for what he believed. Paul is writing to these Thessalonians and commending them for similar actions. We know that in history that the Christians were not very well treated. We find it in Hebrews 11, 1136 to 38. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. These are of whom the world is not worthy. And we read about them every week. Of whom the world is not worthy. And he is saying, these people are extraordinary people. And we should commend them for it. Well, I'll tell you, there's times I read stuff like this and I'm going, I'm so glad I don't have to make that choice today. And yet, there are choices we make every single day. When the world comes at us with its lure, how much of it are we accepting? And going, eh, yeah, it really doesn't bother anybody. It's just something to think about. C.S. Lewis in his book, Problem of Pain, is talking about pain, but I think there's a parallel. He says, quote, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when it gets hard, God is shouting and saying, do you believe? Do you trust? Will you stay true? Interesting the way Paul continues, even though there's a break in your text. Remember, the headers are not divinely inspired. So we go immediately from verse 4 to verse 5. He talks about the persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Wait, what? Persecutions and afflictions are evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, yeah. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. As one man put it, there is never a bad time to share the gospel. Opportunities are, are frequent. Uh, there's really a lot of ways that can be done. One pastor wrote about his friend Spencer Nielsen who wrote a report uh, monthly uh, about, uh, how would it here, current data in terms of credit. So it was a very high finance kind of newsletter. And the top uh, executives of all the major Fortune 500 people would subscribe to it. But every Christmas, he would include the gospel in his newsletter he was a believer. 
and he felt it was an appropriate time to talk, talk about the coming advent of Jesus Christ. So an executive of Bell Atlantic, the phone company of the East Coast at the time, wrote him, Dear Mr. Nielsen, I'm writing to voice my displeasure in receiving the religious material insert in my last issue. It is most inappropriate and detracts from the strength of each subject in a standalone manner. You should reevaluate this as a business practice. My guess is that most of your readers are put off by it. His reply, thank you for your letter. I was pleased to hear that you noticed my Christmas message. <laughs> what a great way to put it. Regarding your comment that it was inappropriate to include in my newsletter, there's no such thing as an inappropriate time to talk about Jesus Christ. Each year I get an equal number of letters and phone calls thanking me or objecting to the Christmas message. Negative comments are generally because they consider it offensive. The message of Christ is offensive. Christ was crucified by people who considered him offensive. He tells us we are all born sinners in need of salvation, that we, that we must be washed clean by his blood shed on a cross, that no one will get to heaven unless they come to the realization that they are powerless to save themselves, or that Christ died to redeem them from punishment they cannot escape unless they accept him as their savior. That's pretty offensive, but true. Over the centuries, his disciples were stoned, beheaded, and tortured for simply confessing their belief in him. So I consider myself fortunate in this age to be able to speak freely without anyone being able to stop me. I don't mind the criticism as long as it brings anyone who is not saved to the realization that it's necessary to make life's most important decision now before it's too late. Sincere. That is a testimony. So if you talk about your faith at work or at school or in other situations and someone takes offense, you can smile and say, well, you're right. It is offensive. I'm asking you to change your life. I'm asking you to save your life. Because if you don't, there's a God who will not just go, oh, it's okay. Come on in. And this is where the rest of the letter kicks in in 2 Thessalonians. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus is returning in judgment. I mean, look at this. You've got verse... It's the middle of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. The word revealed there is apocalypsis, which we have and derivate the word apocalypse. 
That's what apocalypse means. Apocalypse doesn't mean destruction. That's what we have given it to mean. The word actually just means to be revealed. What was hidden is now being revealed. And he's going to be coming from heaven, which means we know where he is now. He's in heaven. According to Hebrews 8.1, he is sitting at the right hand of God. It also says in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, let me read it. At the end of the ascension, Christ has risen. He's gone up to the sky. The disciples have watched it. They've seen it. And they're just kind of standing there with their mouths agape. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, two men stood beside them in white robes, obviously angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? And I want to put in, with your mouths agape. <laughs> it's like, what's... This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. The promise is that he is going to come back from heaven just the same way he went up. Very visibly, very physically, and rather dramatically. It also says that he is being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In Psalm 68, 7, it says that his chariots are twice 10,000 or thousands upon thousands. When Christ returns, we can look at other passages that talk about the extraordinary presentation of what that will be. It's not going to be a quiet email. Hey, dude, I'm here. No. It's going to be dramatic. It will be seen by everyone and everywhere. And you have his angels, you think, oh yeah, he needs five or six of them to make it kind of noisy. Imagine the entire hosts of heaven declaring his presence. This is what it's saying. But then it adds, he's being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now there's two ways to look at that. One is, the flaming fire is a description of his glory. We have, uh, let's see, it's over in Exodus, uh, Exodus 19.18. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, it says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. But that was his glory being expressed. So that's one way of looking at it. And it's, it's an accurate way. I've actually read sermons that, that they focused on it with that intent. There's a flip side. Fire is also destructive. Fire is also a picture of judgment. In 2 Peter 3.10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is not some light-hearted you know, campfire. This is the judgment of God. And it said, why is he coming? The next half of the verse, to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, when we read that, we see that God is going to, Jesus is going to come back in vengeance. And we go, no, he's not. He loves us all. He would never do anything like that. I mean, the Old Testament maybe, and Paul wrote about it just all the time. You know, he, he was a vengeful kind of guy. But Jesus, Jesus is meek and mild. Jesus is merciful and gracious. And he came to save, not to judge. Have you heard that? You have, oh, the Old Testament's all about fire and you know, condemnation. The New Testament's all about grace and love. And you want to go, okay, so let's look at what Jesus actually had to say. Wouldn't that be interesting? And I call this section Judgment Jesus Style. <laughs> John the Baptist in Matthew 3.13 said, Jesus will clear the threshing, hole, threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is John the Baptist saying, this is who's coming. Then Jesus himself said in John 5, I'm paraphrasing, God gave me authority to execute judgment. Marvel not, for the hour is coming when those who have done evil will receive a resurrection of judgment. My judgment is just. In Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment. Matthew 13, 40, Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, which, by the way, is an echo of what John the Baptist had said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be the end of the age, be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, does that sound like meek, mild, merciful, and gracious? Well, not on the face of it. Luke 3, 13, 3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will perish. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. These came to him and said, Lord, haven't we done this or that in your name? And Jesus said, Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Jesus was about love and grace. But he was also, at the same time, saying there will be a reckoning. There has to be a reckoning. There has to be a right of the wrong. There ha God is holy. He cannot, he cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot be in the presence of lawlessness. So, Jesus said, I become the sacrifice. I become the death so that you don't have to. And so we come to this section where you've got the Lord returning and reigning vengeance. Now, you want to say, okay, I, I almost have to step back because there was a question that came to me while I was listening to various sermons and reading something online. Why is Jesus coming back? 
settle accounts. Okay, but why? Couldn't he just stay up in heaven and just kind of let it all play out? I mean, why? He doesn't need to set up a kingdom. He already is everything. I mean, isn't this kind of an odd question? But you said it. And it's found in verse 6. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is what is right, is what is justice. We think of justice today. Justice has been hijacked. The concept of justice has been hijacked by our society. Justice has now been turned into a word that has to have a uh, adjective to describe it. Social justice. So you have to have, oh, justice means only if you're doing good things for people. Well, that's been around forever. You know, but now you have social justice warriors that will condemn you if you don't agree with their interpretation of justice. So we have to stop and go, well, what is justice? We understand justice, typically, but we use a basis of human law and not God's law as our definition. So if the law changes, justice changes. I mean, think about it. If it was suddenly legal to kill newborn children in the state of New York, then that's okay. Oh, wait, that just happened. That's justice? Well, according to the law, it is. According to those who would adopt the idea that you can abort a child all the way up to birth and get away with it, that's justice. And you go, well, well no, it's not. Well, um, you know, according to what criteria? Well, the Bible says, and they go, ah, pfft. You know, as Jagerstadter was going fooey on Hitler, they go on the Bible, fooey on the Bible. You can't tell us what to do. God's justice is not vindictive. And that's where we have to make the difference when we read a word that he is coming to inflict vengeance or to repay affliction with, to those who afflict you. It's not vindictive. It's not an emotional upheaval in a fit of anger. It's not out of exasperation. He laid down the law from the very beginning. I mean, we can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments if you'd like. We can go to all of Scripture and God says, this is the way it is. Accept me as your Lord. And if you don't, well, there is consequences to that. But if there isn't consequences, then what's the point? Think of it as a child. We're all children, even though we're adults. But, you know, when you were younger, you, you pressed the boundaries a little bit. You'd push your parents till they finally gave in, or they relaxed the law a little bit. Well, then that means the bar changed, the bar moved. And we feel like we can get away with anything but God simply says, I set up the law here, and this is the way it is. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 45. I'll read it to you. 
Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that, can, that cannot save. Declare and present your case. In other words, make your case to me. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God beside me, the righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved. A.W. Tozer defined justice as justice when used of God is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. When God acts justly, he's not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. God is just. He is right. He is righteous. He is holy. And that threshold is upon which everything is based. Jeremiah 32:19 He gives everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Revelation 19 verse 2 His judgments are true and righteous. Over in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. There's just simply no question. There's no way around it. But how do you express that to someone? Because, you know, we have the world and we have our... um, uh, Joel Osteen's who will say, you know, he writes a book, Your Best Life Now... And I'm thinking, is that all there is? This is it? This is my best life now? Well, tell that to the people who are in hell. You know, you might feel good now, but if you haven't taken care of your relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Holy Father, it's not going to go well with you in your best life later. Or we have others that say, you know, just can't we just get along? Can't you, you stop being so judgy? That is, you know, it's really hard to, to combat that because it's being thrown at us all the time. And you want to have to, you can only get at it philosophically and say, well, then whose morality are we following? Yours? Mine? There has to be some criteria. And if we don't have that, then it's chaos. Oh, yeah, it's chaos right now. Because everyone is making up their own rules. But God considers it just to be revealed from heaven to inflict vengeance or punishment or judgment on those who do not know God. But then he also says another reason why he's coming. Do you see that in verse 7? To grant relief to you who are afflicted. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. We look at all around us. We look at the judgment. We look at everything. We forget that he's also coming 
for us. To grant relief. The Greek word means absence of trial. It's used when to describe that feeling for a, a warrior who has released the arrow. You know, you hold it, if you've ever done bow, bow, you, you hold it and man, you've got to pull and you cannot be trembling because you do that, the arrow is doing that on the other end. You've got to hold it and that tension is pretty intense. And then you let it go and there's this relief because your arrow is flying straight and true. But that moment of relief is this idea of to grant relief or the absence of tension at that moment. That's that feeling he's trying to describe. He is coming for us because he loves us. And he sent his son to die on the cross for the propitiation of sins that he cannot stand. That relief comes, and then those who have not obeyed the gospel, who do not know God, they take the other side. They, verse 9, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. This, in other words, is hell. The place of eternal punishment. The place of eternal destruction. There are those who say that uh, hell is going to be a big party. And you'll be part of it. You know, the guy saying, hey, all my, all my friends are going to be there. We're just going to be partying till you know, the night. Forever. I mean, it's just a you know, debauchery. Yay, we get to go there and play. C.S. Lewis says, hell, in hell, everyone will be at an infinite distance from everyone else. It's, I mean, there's nothing. Nothingness. There's not even the presence of God. Nothing. One fellow wrote it this way. Let me find it. One writer calls it the bottomless pit. And that conjures up dreamlike feelings of falling away. <clears throat> falling, falling, falling. You've all had dreams like that. Where you woke, when you woke and your heart was beating because you'd been falling. Picture in your mind hanging over a precipice and God is hanging on to you. And you're hanging on to him. Then you decide you don't need him anymore. So you let go. The moment you let go, you know you made a mistake. And you're falling. And every moment you fall further and further away from the only source of help and truth and love. And you realize you made a mistake and you can't get back up. And you fall further and faster and further and faster into spiritual oblivion. And you know you're going the wrong direction. You give anything to go back, but you can't. And you fall and you fall and you fall and you fall and you fall. How long? Forever. And all the while you're falling, you say, I'm further now. I'm further. I'm further from the only source of hope, truth, and love. In hell, there is never the bliss of annihilation. You give anything for annihilation, but it's unavailable. Only the conscious continuation of emotional anguish, physical anguish, relational anguish, and spiritual anguish forever. Guys, I don't want to go there. 
I don't experience that. But that is what Paul is writing about. He's saying you will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at all among all who believe, because our testimony to you is believed. And he continues, verse 11, To this end we always pray. Oh, he echoes 1 Thessalonians 5.17. To pray always. He does it again. To this end we always pray for you, that our God will make you worthy of His calling. Does that sound familiar? Well, when Pastor Darrell Delhousay was our interim pastor, he preached quite frequently in Ephesians and his last statement in his benediction at the end of every service was to walk worthy of the calling. That's found in Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To this end we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. John Piper did an entire sermon on the word resolve in this passage. And I don't want to go into it. It's, it was very lengthy. It was brilliant to take that idea of to be resolved to work for his kingdom, to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Why? Verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice I emphasize the word in, in verse 12, because it's mentioned in verse 10. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and then He combines it in verse 12 when He said that God may be glorified in you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Are we reflecting that glory and that grace and that love to others to draw them to Him? That is what Paul is trying to say. You have a, a group of people that are fearful of something. They are fearful that the hope of glory has been lost, that they missed their chance. And he's coming back and he's saying, you're really good people. I love you dearly. But this is what's actually going to happen. Fear not. God is in control. And when we come to next week, we get to talk about what that end times is going to have a little more, what the signs are. And it's one of the more, uh, how should I say, commonly preached passages of the New Testament. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for your word. It's always so full. There's so much to discuss and so much to, to think about. I mean, we only have 12 verses here, and we covered the entire, entirety of theology, your coming, and the Christian life in 12 verses. Isn't that the way you teach us? To remind us why we need to be in the Word so that we can get through this world and to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name.